and welcome back to another episode of Beauty Island. I'm your host, beauty journalist Brittany Stewart, and each episode I ask my guests about the eight beauty products that have special memories or significance for them that they take with them to a desert island that I am oh so cruelly sending them off to. This week I'm so excited to be talking to Sydney journalist and editor Kelly Baker. She has more than two decades experience working as a beauty editor in both the magazine heydays and the current changing times in online media. You name a publication and she's probably written for them. After the former beauty and health director of the Australian Women's Weekly, yes, welcomed me into her home mid-face wash, did that annoying thing where I was a little bit early and I didn't know what to do so I kind of caught her a bit unawares. We talked about how she got her start in the industry, the current state of magazines, flying overseas for a blow-dry, why beauty is way less bitchier than fashion, the stigma around Botox and fillers, yes, she's had them, controversy around anti-aging products, and writing about being a single mum on the internet. She had so many interesting things to share, this is actually a two-parter. You're currently listening to part one, which, as they say, is the best place to start. As usual, no mentions of any beauty products in this episode are sponsored or adverts. Everything mentioned here is a genuine and honest recommendation or recollection. And as always, I'll pop links to all the products discussed and where to find Kelly in the show notes. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so just to start, if I could get you to say your full name and what you do. Kelly Baker, beauty editor. Do I throw an extraordinaire? You can, random, you can call yourself whatever random you like. Random voice. <laughs> <laughs> Very random. Person who opens front door while still washing face. <laughs> it was certainly an on theme. Welcome. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, so, Kelly, welcome to Beauty Island. Thank um, you. As you know, um, we come on to talk about your life, your career, beauty, and the eight beauty products that have a special significance for you. So, you have an, in- an incredibly impressive resume. You've written for... Vogue Australia, Sydney Morning Herald, you were the beauty and health director at Australian Women's Weekly, you've been at Nine Honey, um, Body and Soul. Everywhere. Everywhere. I've been (laughs) everywhere. Do you know why that is? Because I am a (laughs) grown-up. I've been doing it for so long, that's why. Yeah. I think when you're there long enough, you just end up everywhere, gradually. Was beauty always the focus of what you wanted to do? I think um, initially, no. I think, uh, you know, I've always, I always wanted to be a journalist from when I was a kid. I wrote a letter to the editor to when I was nine. That was in the Sydney Morning Herald. It's about my outrage about horse racing and how abusive it was. And I was so impressed with myself when uh, they printed it. And um, I really had a, a passion, really, for providing a voice for people who didn't have one. So that was really my main game initially. I started in news and it really, for me, it sounds a little bit naff, but it meant a great deal to me to actually be able to be out in the community and help people if I could and provide that voice. I think as a young girl though, um, I grew up in the country and the world of magazines and beauty just seemed terribly glamorous and out of reach and wonderful and magical. So I probably had a part of me that really wanted to be involved in that as well. But I think it was more because it seemed so, um, you know, just not a part of my world. I wanted to be a part of it because I wasn't more than anything else. And then when I moved into magazines... Once I worked in magazines, then I definitely knew that's where I wanted to be. It just looked like princess world and I wanted in. (laughs) And what was the reality like? Is it as glamorous as you 
as the younger you anticipated or hoped for? Look, I think in many ways it actually is. It is. It's very, very glamorous. It's very, um, it's extraordinary in many ways. It certainly was then. It's changed enormously now. But when you're flying business class to Singapore to get a blow dry, that's pretty bloody amazing for a country (laughs) kid. And you're like, I just flew business class to Singapore and I'm pretty sure it was just to get my hair blow dried. (laughs) And everyone was like, it was a good blow dry though. And I was like, I know, right? It only cost like 20 grand. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, it was pretty astonishing that you'd be at your desk all day receiving you know, products and gifts and going to lunches and sitting next to the Prime Minister and and moving in circles and going to places that certainly coming from my background, I'm I'm very working class background, country kid, working class, to suddenly find yourself in those kind of places really was heavenly. I think the thing that surprised me most about it, and I must have had some preconceived ideas without realising because I, I felt the surprise, is that the women and the the people who worked in the industry were considerably more clever and had more depth than I had anticipated. So clearly at some point I had thought they weren't going to because I do remember being genuinely surprised. <laughs> that people have an interest beyond just the lipstick. Yes, that these girls are clever, really clever. They're, um, I think coming from a news background... You get a bit snooty. You're a bit like news is the only news. And who are these girls <laughs> writing about lipstick, for God's sake? Get out of my face. I'm actually saving people's lives. <laughs> so you do feel you, you you kind of – and I started when I was 17, so you actually grow up with that mentality. You work in a newsroom. It's very hardcore. It's with a lot of men. You're all very intense and think you're very important. There's posters on the walls saying people pay a dollar a day to read what I think, and you believe it. And it's very self-indulgent, but it is, um, you do still try, you've kind of got that thing like we're, we're actually doing good. So that was really important to me. It took me a while to kind of bring the two together in that the women in beauty, I think, a lot of them aren't actually journalists. They're not. They don't have that background, but they have phenomenal skills that I did not have. And that really impressed me that they could work a room like nobody's business and they were so um, able to to communicate and talk to advertisers and make people comfortable and make people feel loved and appreciated and all that those are skills well they say that a lot of beauty editors eventually become editors partially because they have that 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 skill is amazing to actually be able to hold a room like that and have everybody walk away feeling like they were the only person in the room that's that's a real skill and like there's not a lot of news journalists that would have that yeah so I was very impressed with them and also they were fun they were really fun they were friendly and kind and welcoming and um fashion is not like that interesting why do you think the difference not like that at all um look there's a few reasons fashion is um more prestigious on the whole so you can buy a Dior lipstick, say, even if you've got $2 in the bank, you could pretty much get away with buying a Dior lipstick if it really means that much to you, but you can't buy a Dior dress. So there's a whole different ball game of kind of class and strata there if you want to really get into yeah. unpacking it. But the other thing is um, beauty, certainly in my day in print, 
has changed an enormous amount. In in traditionally beauty, the community of beauty editors and beauty writers and and so on were more connected to one another than they were to their own titles. Okay. So the staff of a magazine tend to be largely in the office, whereas beauty editors spend every day together. Yeah, Always. all events. And- they're at functions, they're at events, they're out together. So they actually see one another more than they do their own team members. So there's that. Fashion as well is very competitive in that there's only one Dior dress in Sydney right now and say Vogue wants to shoot it, I've got to loan it to Elle to shoot it. Yes. There's only one there. So whereas we we like run up and down the building going, have you got that? Have you got that lipstick that is? Can I borrow it because I need to shoot it, or can I just actually use yours images? And we work together more. It's just a less competitive environment. Fashion's very very competitive. Some of it comes from um, a, a prestige kind of um, imaginary idea and some of it's just sheer practicality there just aren't enough kind of akira dresses to go around to to be wearing them in the shoot there's only three yeah and that's it so new idea cannot have one only vogue and harpers can have one and they, they've got the capacity to do that whereas um beauty is just much more commercial there's far more money involved they're not going to cut anybody out because they want your money Yep. basically. <laughs> and I do want to um, talk to you more about your thoughts on magazines. You've obviously worked in magazines digital, but first I would love to hear the first product that you were taking with you. On my island. island trip. Yes. I would say now that we, we've had a bit of a, a chat about it, I, I would say um, the, the fragrance June, which is a Dior fragrance. I've just looked it up now. I don't actually have any. I've just looked it up now and, and we've discovered that it is still available which is bizarre given that you never hear about it. Yeah. I'm shocked that well. <laughs> and the reason why I think is, um, look, it's a Dior fragrance, so obviously it's a quality fragrance, but I don't, I don't even know if it's any good. I don't even know if it's, if it's a pretty fragrance or appealing in any way. But when I was young, I was maybe 17, I think, when I got some, and I just thought I was so fucking glamorous. <laughs> Like, look at me with my Dior fragrance wandering around. I'd have carried the bottle around and shown everyone if I could have. <laughs> what around your neck or yeah, something? Yeah, check me out. I'm wearing Dior. You know, I, I'm sure I probably put heaps of it on so that people could smell it and be like, it's Dior. Oh, I think you'll find that's Dior, but I, I don't remember anyone even asking me. But it felt to me to be grown up and sophisticated and all the things that at the time I really didn't feel that I was. So it was, it was exciting for me. What was your first beauty related memory? Like were you did you grow up watching someone in your family? No. Mag- no. Devour magazines. Magazines, or- yes. I am from a, a family of all girls and I grew up just outside of Byron. And um look, I didn't even wear shoes until I went to high school. So there was no there Down was to a, yeah. there was no makeup or anything like that. We it just wasn't wasn't a thing. But I think also for me, um, I was obsessed with Dolly magazine, just obsessed as all Australian girls were at that time, I think. And um, I think really I was just one of those, and this is probably very common, just one of those country kids who really felt there was a bigger world outside of my town and outside of what I was experiencing day to day. And that sort of seemed like a gateway to it. So I used to be very interested in makeup 
myself. I don't remember wearing it a lot. I don't remember wearing it out a lot, but I do remember putting it on a lot. I was very interested in the application and I was the one who knew how to do things and I always knew how to put eyeshadow on and everybody else would want me to do it. But it just it, it was more kind of um, a dreamy pastime than a practicality. I don't really remember having any. I must have had some. Then I went to high school in the States as okay. an exchange student. Holy makeup. Big. Heaven. <laughs> oh, man. Those girls are not mucking around. So they would have like, um, and this is straight out of Byron, they would have their their curling ones in the bathroom sort of from, from period one warming up so you could redo your hair because it was a long time ago. They, they had to, they took ages to warm up back then. You'd plug them in for, for like uh, history studies and then you'd duck back on your way to English, <laughs> give yourself some higher bangs. So, I mean, this was Midwest America. Yeah. And it was late 80s and it was big hair and blue eyeshadow. And um, it was really like eye-opening for me. I, I'd never worn any makeup, certainly not to school. You couldn't wear makeup to school. But they don't wear uniform or anything and they were heavy-duty made up. Yeah. And that, I think I discovered purple eyeliner, also blue I remember going to an optometrist once and he was like, oh my God, what is this crap in your eyes? <laughs> I guess it had all kind of collected in there. But yeah, I was really into colored mascara, big hair. It was, it was tremendous. And did you bring that back with you when you came back from exchange and what was the reaction like? I think, and I mean, admittedly, this is a long time ago. I think I probably came back with a very inflated sense of myself, <laughs> thinking that I was pretty um, sophisticated and more more worldly than the people I had left behind and was reconnecting with. I never did really reconnect with um, the the people from my school after that. I think it was just a real fracture. I, I'd gone overseas for a year. Um, I'd been alone for a year, really, and I'd, I, I sort of I left seventeen and came home twenty six. I just I was very grown up and um, had been. I mean, in, in um, like perspective to a seventeen yeah. year old, I was still not grown up. But um, yeah, I think I certainly had the power of, of of makeup after that. I think I just felt a lot more sophisticated and perhaps just a bit more confident in myself. Coming from that, what was the first journalism job that you had? Where was that? And was that when you moved to Sydney or was it still where you were? I went um, to Queensland and I did a cadetship at the Gold Coast Bulletin. And um, it was it was amazing actually in that uh, it's a massive newspaper. It's a, a regional newspaper, but it's the biggest regional newspaper in the country. It certainly was at the time. And um, it was a hard very, very hard. You made a mistake and they would make you cry. And they would stand over you and say, but I want you to tell me why. And you'd be going, but it was a mistake. And they go, yeah, but why? And, you know, you did not make mistakes twice. Yeah. So um, the training was phenomenal. I've, I just don't think there's training like that anymore. It was brutal. I don't think that's so so good. But, um, you know, you, you know how to structure a story. And you know how to interview people and you know what to bring to the table to woo people in and, and yet leave them feeling like they just learned something. You, you know how to do everything, basically. They throw you in at the deep end and um, you just either survive it or you don't. And a lot of people didn't, but I was just determined. Actually, I don't think it occurred to me to ever 
it's not like a giving up. I never would have had the courage to walk away. I didn't feel like I wasn't that kind of kid. It was sort of like it didn't enter my head that you don't have to do <laughs> You don't actually have to put up with that. It just never really entered my head that you didn't have to. So I'm still tight with some of the girls that I went through that paper with. Hardly any of them are still in journalism, but there's a couple. And then what was your first transitioning from that? So how long did you spend in news and then what was your first role? Four years. In, in the beauty media. In newspapers. And then I moved to Sydney and started as a senior reporter at New Idea. So that was still news, really. It was a, a newsier magazine then than it is now. And um, again, it was intense. Um, I had an editor, like, I remember someone sending me to Broken Hill once and she laughingly said to me, but she meant it, yeah, yeah, you get that story and if you don't, don't come back. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So, you know, they were still, like, this was back in the heyday of, um, you know, Ita Buttrose and yeah. it was intense. Like, they weren't, these were intense women who were not mucking around and even though that woman was joking she probably meant it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so you did get the story and course, you did go back of course so my mo was always like yeah you might yell at me people it was actually don johnson and i was outside his hotel room in running gear pretending to exercise oh, stretch just jumping in here for anyone who doesn't know, and I know I had to do a bit of a Google before my memory was jogged, Don Johnson is a famous American actor, producer, director and singer who won a Golden Globe for his work on TV show Miami Vice. He married co-star Melanie Griffith twice and is the father of someone else you may recognise, Fifty Shades Dakota Johnson. I'm just stretching out here. And then eventually I had to go and knock on the door. And I think we took a kangaroo with us knocked on the door and we figured we'd take this little baby like Joey and overwhelm them with that. <laughs> that was him and Melanie Griffith. They were oh. filming in Broken ba uh, what was it, Broken Head. And uh, I got the story. But, yes, they were, of course, people always yelled at you and I just thought, yeah, you can yell at me and it will be upsetting, but I'd much rather you yell at me right now because I'll never see you again. But she's going to yell at me every day <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, you know, these, these are the options that we had to take. But it was um, it was interesting in that um, new idea then. You travelled everywhere. We flew all over the country and we did a lot of kind of authentic local type stories. Big, big, revelationary, amazing stories from very regular people. Sort of ordinary people telling amazing stories. And it meant going to places like Broken Hill or Catherine and Northern Territory that I never go to. These are not places that you put on your holiday list. No one's heading off to Broken Hill anytime soon. <laughs> not quite well, a I top would. luxury destination. <laughs> I wouldn't. But it was amazing. It was a really wonderful, intense kind of thing to do. And from there, I went into women's magazines. So gradually, I was inching towards the magic princess world of beauty. So that took a while. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I was headed. I suppose the last few years you've been much more digital focused yes. in your work, yes. but you did, you spent a good bulk of your career working in magazines and the top oh. Australian magazines. How do you feel kind of watching, or what are your thoughts on the current state of watching magazines? Watching it all disintegrate it, and implode. Exactly. I actually find it heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. I walked past um, Bower the other day, the Tower of Power. And uh, there was a couple of kids kind of strutting their way in and I just thought, wow, you've so missed the boat. I know you're strutting because you think you're going into something important, but what you've got here, what you're seeing here is just the absolute ashes of an industry that has just completely disintegrated. And 
I mean, that's, I just find it really very sad. It doesn't seem to be happening. I've just um, been overseas the past couple of weeks. Still magazines elsewhere. Magazines are still ticking along, but not in Australia. And if you walk past what used to be a news agent now, it's all like um, you know, trinkets to hang off your bag and slippers and keep cups <laughs> and anything other random crap that they can find to stock their shelves because magazines just aren't there anymore. I just, I actually find it genuinely sad, really sad. A, for, the, for myself because it's my whole world and I've had my whole world kind of ripped out from under me. And B, for people coming up who I just think, you never, you've missed the boat. What you're seeing is not what this was meant to be. I do believe it'll come back. Yeah, interesting. But I think it's going to take a while. So I, I think for me, it's probably done. I think for you, you're in with a good shot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, you grew up and when you decided you wanted beauty, beauty magazines were the thing that you aim for. And I think people my age, we don't know it's good if they're going to be there in a year or two yeah. years. So it's definitely like the focus of what you're you're aiming for has definitely changed. Yes, but it's it is interesting because you do go into news agents and there are lots of international magazines and there are definitely changes happening in the UK and the US. But you see the numbers and there still is, like you said, a demand for them. Yes, yes. The thing is as well is that even in Australia, the stocking of overseas magazines, international mags, is reducing. So even though those magazines are all still available, say Marie Claire US used to be able to get that at Town Hall at the news agents. Don't stock it anymore. And the reason why is because I'm the only one who ever <laughs> bought it. Every month I was in the, I'm after that one copy of Marie Claire US. They're like, yeah, well, you weren't really sustaining our business, <laughs> just you. So we've had to shut that down. So it's, um, I'd find that very sad. And also, I guess what I find terribly sad is that, I mean, print obviously is, it has always been my, my love. I'd much rather print, but I don't, I, don't, I mean, that's a little bit like, I suppose, liking a horse and cart when cars come. So you've got to get on board with cars. So if it can't come in print, that's okay. I can live with that. If it's going to come laptop, it's going to come iPad, whatever, digital, fine. But the quality is not there. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt my heart so much if what was on paper was transferred online. Yeah. And I mean, not literally, because obviously you read in a completely different way online, but if the quality and the depth was there and the seniority and the experience and the care and the time. It's the time, isn't it? All of that was there. I'd still be going, okay, I can't ride my horse and cart. I've just got to go <laughs> digital and stop being like old fashioned. But what is there is just a lot of it. The vast majority of it is crap. That is what hurts my heart. I just think... What, what is this crap? Why, why would anybody, why are we having to only uh, appeal to the lowest denominator here? Why, why do people think that that's what everyone wants? It's not. We want a clever and, and got depth and intellect and vast interests and layers. They don't just want to know. Like it, I just don't, I feel like it's such a mistake. And then you've got all these kids working in digital who are really clever kids, clever, switched on, amazing. No one's there to teach them anything. There's no time to teach them anything anyway because yeah. they've got to write mentors. 14, 17,000 stories a day. Oh, I know. I or know. else. <laughs> so there's no time. But there, even if there was time, there's no one there to teach them anything. So they, they're, not, they're not being trained up. So it's, it's like the industry is just 
dying, if not dead. Mm. Everybody come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I will teach you all. Yeah, that seems sad to me. On a slightly happier note, <laughs> what, uh, why don't you tell me about the second product? What would be this? I would say um, we were talking earlier about the Clinique. Uh, I think it's called Black Honey. It's a lip product. When I, I think you can only get it now if you can get it at all in a, a lipstick um, tube. It, you used to be able to get it in like a little tiny pot, a bit like a gloss, and it came with this little baby brush. So I, again, really fancied myself with that and thought I was terribly grown up. I, I can't remember what job it was, but I remember being at David Jones and talking to the Clinique woman and saying, I've got, you know, three seconds of time a day to, before I go to work, but I need to look like I've done something. So she was saying, okay, you know, you have this little pot, you can just pop it on with this little brush. And I think there was also, I also bought an eyeshadow that was probably a very neutral sort of shade of caramel you know, chocolate brown and just swept that across my eyes and mascara and that, that uh, little bit of pot of gloss. And it just, I've, I've always, I remember seeing um, Justine Cullen, I remember her mentioning it once as well. It was obviously a, a sort of cult product at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you can get it anymore. They certainly brought it back in a lipstick at some point and maybe they'll bring it back again. You know, it could be one of those ones that just pops up. But yeah, Black Honey, it was, it was pretty, but it was quite natural little bit of color not a huge amount so and because it came in a little pot you could open the lid and impress people on the train and be like look at me I'm a little <laughs> lipstick pot I really did go for that whole lipstick brush thing for a while there I thought that was pretty fancy you mentioned before about obviously the lack of people to teach and to mentor who is someone that has really shaped you and your career either professionally or personally that you had very very few to be frank. Really? Yeah, very few. There's certainly been people in my career who have shaped it, uh, not because they've wanted to, not because they were trying to do me a favour or do uh, anything good for me, but I've certainly watched people and thought, wow, never do that. (laughs) Never to do. I will never treat people like that. Um, Look, I've had one or two. I was um, the deputy editor at TV Week at one point. And the editor at the time was Katie Eckberg, who was a British woman who had come out from working on a lot of um, very high-profile British entertainment mags. She was uh, not only tremendously kind to me, which was a bit of a shock, but uh, she was very – I learned a lot from her, a lot. Um, I don't know that she she set out to teach me anything. She's just a very kind woman – I worked alongside her and she's very, very talented. So I think I probably absorbed a lot. And that's probably the the beauty of it in that most people just don't even let you kind of in. They don't – magazines are very cutthroat and um, competitive. Media is in general. It's not wildly traditional amongst the women to help one another doesn't seem to really happen and these days it's probably down to being too busy but there's a lot of kind of lord of the flies activity going on in those in those buildings so if you can find someone who will actually help you then that's pretty amazing um i worked with helen mccabe for quite a long time at the weekly she certainly gave me some pretty amazing tips and same with uh carrie elstup who is the head of digital at nine she's currently um she runs Nine Honey, but she's got a much bigger overarching job. She certainly showed me some some good things to do and not to do too. She's 
got you know that she's got an amazing amount of compassion which i think is wonderful so yeah i've learned i've learned i think in a way well i've learned an enormous amount but there's not been a lot of or never has there been any kind of i'm going to show you yeah so you've kind of had to just do it on your own yes completely you pick it up where you can one guy did say to me in Melbourne once, and he was the publisher of the magazine, and there was a girl there who was giving me such a friggin' hard time. And I just was like, why? The things that they did every day, like they would take my chair. I'm like, oh, you're so funny. They poured water in my computer. I just it's like high school, like primary school. Oh, it was stuff. extraordinary. The things that go on would blow your mind every day. And I mean, back then it was unsophisticated. Now it's a lot more under the radar because they're a bit more smart. But I remember him saying to me, sometimes you just got to walk into the bar and deck the biggest guy there. (laughs) It's like, you know what? I'm not going to do that, but I love that you said that to me and I'm going to keep that with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was written 20 years ago, but I still have it in my head. I think it's probably quite true. I'm not built like that, so I won't be doing it anytime soon. But I think he's he's on the money there. Obviously, being in the beauty industry for so long and you're in touch with what women genuinely care about or are interested. What are your thoughts on, obviously at the moment there's a big conversation about anti-aging and the way we describe that. And I always think it's interesting because I don't really like the term anti-aging, but I wonder if women are genuinely interested in products that yes. are going to, we all want to, I, want to look younger. I think it's a really interesting idea in that I think anti-aging, the word and the concept is absolutely fine when you're talking to women who don't need it. So if you're pushing anti-aging products, which everybody is now and what they're doing to try and make money because it's all about money, this is a money business. It's just millions and millions and millions of dollars and I don't care if people are trying to suggest that they're boosting women's esteem. That's nonsense. We're seeing that a lot in current advertising Yeah, get real. We? You just yeah. want money. And that's okay. Like that's, like that's absolutely fine with me. Take my money. I want to give it to you so <laughs> I can have your stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, it's a commercial world. And also if you can do something beneficial at the same time as making money, then I, I'm all for that too. Like they could just be saying you're unattractive by this. <laughs> and at least they're not doing that. At least they're actually trying to make you feel good. But I think the, broad, the market has broadened because, of course, if they can get you onto anti-aging types of products when you're only in your 20s they got you for life so they really want to get the young market and then try and keep you through your whole entire life and the more they broaden it the more uh, they can invent products that are like the pre-anti-aging step (laughs) of the teen you know just as long as they can broaden it out it's more products more money but I think it's not an offensive term when you're 25 I think the problem currently is if you're 45, it's not that it's offensive. It's just that you've tuned out altogether. It's, it, they let that market go. They ignored it for so long. They ignored everybody of that age bracket and was all just young, 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 young. Now they're suddenly saying, oh, we want that market, but well, how, do we, how do we skew it? I think that a lot of grown-up women have just kind of completely opted out of the market in terms of listening to advice or taking on anybody's information. They're still buying what they want to buy and they're getting what they want, but they don't feel catered to at all. I think they just feel like they don't exist. And it's going to take a lot to get them back, I think. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. I think it's interesting as well because obviously, you know, rewind a few years ago, most of your beauty knowledge came from magazines. Now, obviously, Mm. in the last 10, 5, 10 years or so, YouTube, Instagram, all the beauty influencers and yes. content creators. But still, not many people even in that space are catering no, to... No, because they're women. 14. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to watch someone on YouTube who's 14 tell me how to roll. So I think um, it is difficult as well as that uh, most of that market is not watching YouTube. And it's a bit two ways. They're not watching YouTube because there's nothing there for them. There's nothing there for them because they're not watching it. So it's a little bit two ways. Um, traditionally, that is a more youthful space to be in, but there's nothing else is the problem. So it, it's a very, it's a strange period of time where advertisers are saying, well, I don't want to be in print because print's dead, so I need to put my money online, but they're not getting any return, but they don't really know what else to do because it's sort of, that's what you do now. You give it to influencers, but they don't get anything back from it. And it's just kind of a bit in flux. I feel like it's going to have to turn in that the quality is going to have to come back. It's going to have to be some longer reads where someone actually spends a day or a week, Lord knows two weeks, <laughs> writing something that's actually got something to that, – that provides something. And I think you probably need to be um, not necessarily a particular age because there's a lot of very smart – younger kids obviously but you need to kind of I don't know be in an environment where someone is allowing you that space to actually spend some time and craft something I think if you're 45 you you just generally aren't going to read something unless it's really going to pull you in and that takes time so the uh, most women my most of my peers can get the same kind of information that would be being provided online from, a, say, a Priceline catalogue. So this is the issue is that the stuff that's available currently doesn't have a lot of depth. It's mainly just stuff you can buy and where you can get it and why it's good, which is great, but that's sort of all there is right now. So I don't know. It's a, it's The information has to be rethought, I think. Are you hopeful that those women are getting spoken to a bit more that we're moving more towards that i mean obviously i don't want to say it's a trend but it is a trend of advertisers like l'oreal using helen mirren or yes or or older women i'm hopeful but i'm not sure that it's really there i think the intention is there and i think the conversation is there and that's where it has to start i have my own website and um and that is my whole premise of of my site and my site is a, a beauty and and lifestyle site I guess you know a lot of people were saying to me you need to be in this 45 plus space and to me I just uh I don't want to narrow it down to me I don't want to be in a an age bracket my feeling is that I want to appeal to to strong women powerful women women who don't want to be demeaned or kind of talked down to so I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 85 if you're bold and sort of strong and you like that kind of fierce, you know, let's get out there and do what we want to do feeling, you can be any age, you can be a boy, it, 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 or gay or not or anything at all. To me, it's more about that heart sort of authenticity of um, if you want to feel good, let's do this thing together. And even if they don't end up buying something, at least they kind of uh, read it and feel good. That's all I care about. So... I think it's coming. I just, I do despair about when. Hurry up. 
<laughs> God's sake. We can't wait all day. So, yeah, you do have your own website, The Beauty Insider. Yes. And you launched that, what was it, 2000, a few years ago? It, it was about, um, I think we were a year old in February. Okay. That's a soft launch. So we're just about to relaunch because when I launched that, I was still working full time for nine. So uh, it was very difficult to really push that site and have a full time job. So um, I'm now freelancing. Um, it's beautyinsider.com.au and it will be relaunched in roughly three weeks when it's relaunched it is phenomenal i've got an agency who've been working on it for such a long time and the the relaunch is amazing so the nice thing for us is that when it launches fully um you know we've got a year's worth of really good quality content so, there, you know, there's a lot of stuff there already. So you don't have to, you know, look new sites. You often go, well, that was fun, but there was only three things there. <laughs> I'm done now. I've read those three stories. Now what to do? So, you know, there's 250 features on there and they're quality. That It's good stuff. So from there on, we hope to hook it up um, to so you can click to buy. So then you've got service as well. So even if you're just reading for fun, that's great. And if you don't have a lot of time for just reading for fun, then you can actually purchase through the site. That's what we're sort of working on currently. Now, I do have a couple more questions about some things that you have written on the Beauty Inside already. But first, I would really like to hear about why Maybelline Great Lash is a product that's on your list. I am mad for cheap mascara. Mad for it. They have the R&D to be able to just... People would say to me, but you know, how, how can they sell it so cheaply if it's not... If, it, if it's a good product. I was like, yeah, because they, they actually have so much money behind them, so much money to pour into research and development so that they can commercialize a product and still make a huge product, sorry, a huge profit because they sell so many. So to me, mascara, you generally don't keep for that long. And if you find one that you love, then you just grab it and stay with it. That one I love. I also really like um, the actual brush. So mascara to me is, um, well, probably to most people, uh, obviously the formula has to be really good. But I think it's down to the brush more than the formula for me. I really like that brush and I feel like it just keeps your lashes separate rather than you have all that gluggy mess. (laughs) So I got a new one just yesterday. And it is not out yet. It'll be out shortly by a massive, massive brand. And this this will be a huge launch. And I used it yesterday and it was terrible. Terrible. My lashes were all gluggy and terrible. I think I know the one you're talking about. And I about. just thought, this is interesting because this is going to be massive. But it's a bad product. And so I guess um, if you can find one that you love, stick with it. And if you've got a little bit of money to try the other things, it's not a huge purchase usually, mascara. So you can afford to make a few mistakes. But, um, yeah, I, I just stick with that one. It's always good. And then I occasionally wander off and think, oh, this looks nice. And I'm like, nah, mistake. Stay. Come back to an old friend. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is a, it's an epic product. And I wonder it's sort of a cult, cult buy. Are there certain products, like I completely agree with you that mascara generally, I mean, there are some exec- exceptions, but generally the budget ones are the best. You don't need to go and spend, yes. drop $60, $70 on yes. a mascara. Are there some products that you have found that the expensive ones do tend to be better or is it a case by case? It is case by case, but if you want to sort of speak broadly, I would say invest in your foundation. 
So if you've got a really good foundation, if you like to wear foundation, so if you've got that really beautiful skin and uh, you, you just your whole kind of canvas looks amazing, then then you can kind of get away with a lot or, or wear nothing at all or just pop on a lipstick. But um, I think often a really quality foundation, if you want to spend your money somewhere, that's a good place to put it. That's what I do. I tend to go really high-end with the foundations. Even with the foundations, though, that are very expensive, you'll still find some that you like and some you don't. Like, I love the La Mer foundation, and it is approximately $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> it's very expensive. I can't remember, but I think it's a couple hundred bucks, or it's $150 maybe. And the concealer that goes with it is one hundred and fifty dollars. That's a hundred, like that. That's a concealer, you know, yep. a little tiny tube, but it's ace. It's so good. So if you're going to use it, and you're actually going to use it, and you can look in the mirror and think that you look really beautiful, I'm all for that. So if that costs money, then why not? But yeah, that's where I would put it: foundation, foundation, and concealer. I think you can skimp elsewhere. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beauty Island, the podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. I'm not done with Kelly Baker yet. She's got plenty more to say about the heydays of beauty, being a single parent, the truth about Botox and fillers, and some really fantastic life advice everyone in their 20s and 30s and beyond needs to hear. So have a look in your feed and you'll see part two. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, write a review, or leave a five-star rating, as it really helps other people to discover the podcast. And it's just little old me here pushing all the buttons. And of course, tell a friend. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode, so you can find me on Instagram at BrittanyBeautyBTS, or I'll pop my email address in the show notes too. I hope you enjoy part two, and until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>